Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Your host is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and usually I'm the host of the New Books and Genocide Studies channel. Occasionally, however, I pinch hit on New Books in History. Today is one of those days, and I'm thrilled that it is. I'm particularly delighted to have the chance to interview Abigail Perkis, author of the wonderful new book, Making Good Neighbors, Civil Rights, Liberalism, and Integration in Postwar Philadelphia, published by Cornell University Press. The book examines the efforts of a single neighborhood in Philadelphia as it wrestles with the local implications of the civil rights movement. Perkis examines sympathetically the neighborhood leader's attempt to steer a middle course, welcoming black neighbors as they moved into the district, while avoiding the trend toward white flight that threatened so many American cities during the mid-20th century. The neighborhood became a national exemplar for the way it dealt with the challenge of racial integration in the broader context of the civil rights movement. Its successes, Challenges and occasional reverses, then, offer us a lens to view America's broader struggles over race and class in the past decades. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk with her about the book. And with that, Abby, thanks for joining us on New Books in History, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I'm excited to be here. So let's start, then, by uh, asking you to say a little bit about how and why you became a historian. Sure. Um, I was a sociology major in college with a creative writing minor and was pretty um, focused on doing documentary film and social justice work. Um, And actually, the day after 9-11, I took my first history class. It was called Media in U.S. History. And we took the day and instead of, you know, looking back on colonial postal services or whatever the book was we were reading for that day, we we looked at the coverage of 9-11 and really tried to put a historical tried to look at it through a historical lens and put a historical context into that news coverage. And it was just a, it was, it was a lightning bolt for me um, and a real moment of recognition that we can't understand the present and work to change the present and the future if we don't understand what's come before. Um, And that class really set me on a different path and directed me to end up getting a PhD in history. So why this book at this time? Um, This book stems from my doctoral dissertation, which I began in 2007. Um, I went into graduate school knowing that I wanted to do something related to history and memory, again, through that lens of the the media class, just the recognition that the way we understand what's come before really impacts the way we negotiate the present. So it's not just what happened in the past, but also how we come to view that impacts. So, So our past become different in different present contexts. And I knew I wanted to focus on that in my dissertation. Um, I was in graduate school in Philadelphia, and I knew this story of the West Mount Airy neighborhood fairly well. I actually lived there for a number of years growing up. And there was there's just this lore of, of West Mount Airy in the neighborhood mm-hmm. and in the city. It's this very sort of utopian vision of what community looks like. And Part of what I wanted to do was explore what actually happened, but I also wanted to to play with that utopia and to think about to think about that critically what it 
meant that people were conceptualizing the neighborhood in this way and what the benefits of that were, but also what the limitations were. So how did it make the process of writing this different that you were writing about a neighborhood that you grew up in? Um, in some ways, it made it easier. Uh, I had a lot hmm. of entries into the community. I knew the people that ran the local institutions. I frequented the local co-op, the local coffee shop. I, I knew hmm. where to talk to people and how to get interviews. The the process of doing oral histories um, became far richer because I was able to use those connections. Um, it was also more challenging, I think, partly because I knew the neighborhood and, and in some ways was protective of it, but also felt really committed to challenging the narrative. Um, but I was really concerned about what people in the community would think. Mm. You know, my husband and I live there now. And, I, you know, I joked with him that we would be chased out of the neighborhood once the book came out. <laughs> and luckily that hasn't happened. Um, and I think the people that experienced integration here and still live here, um, they see that this happened in a historical moment and that, that it was bound by the times in which they were living. And so they're able to look maybe more critically on it than I gave them credit for even. Mm. Um, cause my goal here was to look at it critically. And I, I worried that it would come across to them, to those who experienced it as perhaps overly harsh. Um, and I haven't gotten that response at all. Did you, well, let's, uh, actually, let's go this way. Um, most of our listeners aren't actually probably familiar with Philadelphia. Uh, can you describe then what the neighborhood of Westmount area looked like as it existed at the time period in which you start the book? Sure. Um, and it actually looks quite similar today as, as when mm -hmm. it looked, what it looked like in the 1950s. Um, so Westmount area is a neighborhood in the Northwest pocket of Philadelphia and Philadelphia is really a city of neighborhoods. So if, if you look at a map of the city, um, you see these tiny pockets, each of them with their own sort of culture, their own um, spatial layout, their own um, geographic boundaries. Um, so Westmount area is situated in the historic Germantown network, the historic Germantown community. Um, it's between current day Germantown and current day Chestnut Hill, if you're looking at a map. Um, and it's a neighborhood with a pretty unique physical and spatial layout. It is um, to the the west of the neighborhood is uh, the Wissahickon Gorge, which is part of Philadelphia's Fairmount Park. This was a critical outpost in the Revolutionary War. Hmm. It was a, a former um, site of a number of, of old um, of old inns, uh, bed and breakfasts, hotels hmm. that were set into the woods. Um, and it's just this beautiful wooded green space with this great creek running through it. And it's a centerpiece of the neighborhood. People move to Mount Airy because they want green space. Um, they want to be part of sort of a, uh, a bucolic feel in, in this urban space. Um, so Mount Airy has that. Mount Airy also has um, sidewalks on all of its streets. It's got, you know, corner coffee shops and this wonderful food co-op that opened in, in 1973. But before that, you know, was the site of other community spaces. Um, it was a pharmacy. It was a, I believe it was a grocery at some point as well. Um, Mount Airy's got very strong public schools. Um, Philadelphia, currently the public school system's in crisis and has been <laughs> over the past decades, you know, in fits and spurts. Um, but in terms of Philadelphia public schools, it's always, the schools here are always um, among the highest rated. And it's got a rich diversity of housing stock. So you have old Revolutionary War era houses, you have turn of the 20th century homes, 
Um, you have some post-World War II housing, but very little. Mm. Um, all of these things really came together to make Mount Airy a place that people wanted to stay in. Um, this wasn't a community that was willing to sort of uproot itself and relocate to the suburbs in mass, which happened in a lot of other communities, which is why white flight took hold in so many places. Mm-hmm. Um, the diversity in Mount Airy really lent itself to people wanting to stay. And and when you say diversity, what I hear you talking about is is, is geography and, and the kind of uh, businesses that were there. What about the people? Um, in 1951, which is mm-hmm. sort of when I begin the Mount Airy story of the book, the first chapter goes further yeah. back to look at the history of race and property in the United States. Um, Mount Airy was roughly 98% white. So there was a small pocket of African-American residents. Most of those residents, so some of them were domestic workers, and they tended to live in the southeastern pocket of the neighborhood. But otherwise, the, the black residents that lived in the in the community were quite well off. They were doctors and lawyers and judges and and of a very high professional class. Hmm. And that was true of a lot of the white folks that lived in the community as well. This is a a neighborhood of, you know, today it's called the PhD ghetto because more than one third (laughs) of residents have graduate degrees. Um, And in some ways it's more uh, socioeconomically diverse now than it was in the early 1950s. This was a, a community of professionals. Um, that's, you know, spanned the middle class spectrum, but for the most part, they were people that were comfortably situated. And as a result, you know, had less um, interest in their house as their primary economic status. They had bank accounts that that could survive if, if their house values dropped a little bit um, in the intervening mm. years of transition. They were also um, liberal people overwhelmingly who were working in city politics, who were working in, um, you know, there were members of the Philadelphia Orchestra here. There were the guy who um, invented Monopoly lived here. One of the Cadburys lived here. Um, (laughs) There were people that worked in in sort of all spheres of public life, and many of them were working in spaces that were integrated professionally. Um, So the prospect of living in an integrated space wasn't quite as foreign. And, And how many people lived there? Oh, that's how big a community are we talking about (laughs) broadly? It's uh, roughly 13,000 at this moment, um, Mm -hmm. I believe. I'm sorry, I don't have that statistic. No, that's fine. But but it's a relatively small area by big city standards. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one neighborhood of many, many Mm -hmm. neighborhoods in Philadelphia. And it's one of six neighborhoods in just northwest Philadelphia. So it's a contained space. And that also allowed for the community organizations that emerged to have a hold over these defined geographic boundaries. So what does Philadelphia as a whole look like in that period? Um, Philadelphia is a changing city in the early 1950s. Uh, There's a new government, um, a new, a new mayor that comes into city government who really runs on this platform of reform and he creates these new infrastructures in the city. So he creates a human relations commission, which is designed specifically to deal with race relations in the city. Um, And he really tries to ferret out some of the graft and corruption that had been endemic in Philadelphia city politics for decades. Um, It's also a pretty racist city, as many cities are in the years following World War II, as people are struggling to deal with the new influx of African-Americans from the, you know, the second great migration after during the war when people were moving to urban centers in order to, uh, for job opportunities and creating a black middle class in, this, in uh, northern and midwestern cities. 
Um, so Philadelphia has all of these things going on, but it's also a relatively segregated city. You know, North Philadelphia and pockets of West Philadelphia were uh, predominantly black at that point. And that has actually continued to be the case. Um, parts of South Philadelphia as well, but Northwest Philadelphia was overwhelmingly white. Northeast Philadelphia was overwhelmingly white. So, so it was quite stratified. And you pointed out that, as you say in the, the the first chapter of your book, that that the 1950s and then into the 60s is is the period where you get this idea of white flight. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Well, how quickly does it happen? What are the reasons that it happens? What is the result kind of broadly as we finish setting the stage? So white flight is when white members of a community tend to leave en masse as African-Americans are moving in. That's sort of the broad definition of it. Um, and some people looking at that def- definition applied the idea of integration as the period between the first black family moving into a community and the last white family moving out. It's this really transitory period rather than having any intentionality to it. Um, white flight happens for a number of reasons. It happens because um, realtors step in and start to sort of create a sense of panic in a community. So they'll go door to door and they'll tell white families, you know, there are new people moving into the neighborhood. They may not look like you. They may change the culture of the community. And by doing so, housing prices are going to to fall and your property investments are not secure. So you should move. And they get these folks to sell really for, for really low prices. And then they sell to black families for much higher prices. This is called hmm. blockbusting. Um, so that's some of the the um, on the ground things that happen to make uh, white flight take place. There's also government policies that incentivize white flight to the suburbs. You know, lower mortgage rates, um, new housing stock that doesn't have any you know upkeep to it. Um, the suburbs are all booming at this point. The suburbs are really growing, so folks are looking looking outward. Um, for economic incentives and also for cultural incentives. There's a, there's a sense of cultural cachet that comes with movement to the suburbs, a sense of upward mobility. And many of these suburbs are not open to black families, not necessarily legally. Um, the 1948 Shelley v. Kramer case makes it illegal to separate residentially by race, but certainly culturally and socioeconomically. So what makes the residents, what, what's the, What's the trigger point? What What is it that makes the residents of Westmont area recognize that this is possibly a threat to their community? Well, the same things that are taking place all around them are taking place in Westmont area. You have black families starting to move into the neighborhood and, and Mount area becomes in some ways a hub for black families because word gets around that people are a little bit more quote unquote tolerant, that they're not going mm-hmm. to face violent responses or reactions um, as they had in neighborhoods of North Philadelphia or Northeast Philadelphia rather. Um, so West Mount area and Germantown become sites within the black community that people begin to look and the white residents of Mount area look around and they say, okay, we want to stay in our neighborhood. We are really committed to this space. We love Mount area. We love the Wissahickon Gorge. We love the sort of community connections that we have and all around us, white flight's taking place. All around us, white families are moving to the burbs and leaving their houses. And we don't want to let that happen. So what can we do? What strategically can we do to stay here? And what they said was, let's see what happens if we welcome other people in. 
Mm. We welcome in these new residents. And in 1954, you have a group of, of community leaders coming together, largely around four religious institutions. Um, and they, they do this extensive research and they, they look at, you know, constitutions and housing documents and um, race relations documents. And they do this both nationally and internationally. And after several months of research, they come to the conclusion that, you know, racial integration could work. And not only is it doable, but it may even be an attractive, you know, an attractive thing for our community. It may even set us apart in a way that that ups our cachet. Yeah, I was I, I was really struck by that part of the book because um, even as somebody who has a PhD, the thought of spending several months intensively researching national and, and regional trends for integration and housing prices and legal cases strikes me as something of a daunting endeavor. What what kind of people are these that their first or what is it that makes them decide the appropriate response to this is actually kind of self-study? That's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure one that I've I've thought about in an intentional way. Um, I think these are a lot of the people that are leading this charge come from, you know, a background in study. So whether it's religious study or legal study or they're academics or they work in government policy, they all come from a place where they do the background work before they can set up what comes next. Um, so when you bring that group of people together, their response appropriately is to figure out how other people are doing it. Um, and this becomes a trend in the community before they take action, you know, over the course of the the second half of the 20th century. In almost every instance, before they take action, they say, well, let's figure out why this is happening. Um, and some people criticize them for that because it, it creates a more measured response. It, it slows down the process of change. Uh, my sense is from reading your book that you're not one of those people who are critical, that you think this me measured response is, is um, both appropriate and effective. Um, my goal here is not to be polemical, not to say what was right or wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the model of change that was created in Mount Airy was something unique. This was a community that took a sense of like individual persuasion. Let's go door to door. Let's talk to our neighbors. Let's have block parties and let's bring everybody to the school and have a fundraiser. And that's really effective on a localized level. That's really effective for like immediate reaction. And they took that and they fused that with a sense of government intervention to create structural accountability. And part of that is that, that idea of background research, but part of it is just creating institutional partnerships and institutional connections that they were able to do because people in the community were these government actors. Um, so I think that model of social change and social mobilizing was quite effective. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's something that was innovative in its time and could be replicated. Um, was it right or wrong? You know, it created a more moderate versus progressive form of change. It was perhaps less revolutionary than some people think um, Mount Airy integration was because of that model of change. So, it, you know, it it goes both ways. But I think it was effective in what they were trying to do, for sure. And that's probably a better way to phrase the question. And I, So let me ask you to expand on that. How did they understand what successful integration would be? So that was really different according to who you asked. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm making some broad characterizations, but those can be um, 
fleshed out by the archival research that I found and borne out in that research and in the oral histories that I did. Um, overwhelmingly, white residents saw integration both, as I said earlier, as a strategic way of maintaining their own stake in the community and in some ways as a performance, as a way of, of, of living out their idea of what it meant to be a liber- liberal urban American. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, um, this became sort of a, a, a physical manifestation of the ideals that they had. Um, integration for them was also very class-based. So racial integration could take place so long as everybody had a similar sort of way of life, a similar educational attainment, a similar bank account, though they may not have used that exact language. Some of the the language they used was really um, blatant um, Hmm. in terms of how they were talking about economics. For African-American families in the community, integration was certainly grounded in racial justice, and they certainly saw that this was was part of the civil rights struggle. Um, But it was also... um, grounded in an idea that with integration came material advantages. It brought with it safer schools. It brought with it, you know, more reliable municipal services, better investment in property values. And so these African-Americans who were moving into the community saw the prospect of, of better quality of life by living there. Um, one, one person I interviewed also said that it brought with it a lens into uh, a white culture with which he was trying to engage, and he wanted to expose his children to this white hmm. professional culture. Um, so, so it was strategic for both sides. Um, so what, is the ratio, uh, what, is, what does the neighborhood look like then, say, 10 years after this started? How successful were they at, at, what, at integrating the neighborhood? Um, so in the early years of integration, the uh, black families that were moving in were concentrated into specific sections of the neighborhood, largely, um, as I think I said earlier, in the, the southeastern part of mm-hmm. the community along um, the Lincoln Drive corridor, which is sort of the main thoroughfare that runs through the center of the community. They were on the eastern side of Lincoln and the southern side of, of the neighborhood. Um, but by, you know, the early late 1950s, early 1960s, you have African-Americans spread out, I believe, over 50, 50 plus percent of the blocks in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, it's, it's still a relatively small percentage of the overall makeup of the neighborhood, but it's a larger percentage than the, the national percentage of African-Americans in the United States. And, and you see an upsurge in uh, black presence throughout the community. Um, and that continues to increase you know, today or in 2010, Mount Area was 45% black, roughly 50% white. Um, so the neighborhood really stabilized hmm. um, at a racial balance. Re- reading your book, it seems like the real challenge isn't as much housing, but schools. How does how does that manifest itself in, in, in the neighborhood and how successfully did the residents meet that challenge? Yeah, so in, in the neighborhood, the argument that I make is it took place in spite of some very systemic structural policies, governmental, economic, legal, that fostered racial separation. And they were able to do that because of this innovative um, model of, of social mobilizing. 
with education, there was far less control that they had over the local schools, which were at the whim of the larger district and at the whim of state finances and state educational policy. So there was this real push-pull of, we want to make partnerships with city government. We want to, to have a face at the state policy level, but we don't want these people to make decisions about our community. And they're doing that with schools, and they're doing it in a way that threatens the residential and communal um, cohesion that we're trying to foster. So they dealt with it in a number of ways. They, in some, in some instances, they went to the school board and said, these new district lines that you're drawing, they don't work for our community and you need to redo it. And you need to redo it because we are taxpayers and we are not only taxpayers, but we are wealthy taxpayers. And so we are funding the schools because in Philadelphia, as I, I believe in much of the country, property taxes go toward funding public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have in some ways more of a stake in this or, or more of a voice in this because we are paying more taxes. Um, other times they said, well, we're going to ignore city politics and we are going to do our own fundraising and we are going to, you know, bring parents into the classrooms to uh, give music classes or give, you know, by the 1980s computer classes. Um, other times they said, you know, we are committed to residential integration, but we're not going to do so at the expense of our children. And so we're going to disinvest from the public schools and we're going to send our kids to private schools. And that happened um, in Mount Airy with far more frequency than it did in other parts of the city, both white residents and wealthier African-American residents. Um, Mount Airy is in a geographic space that is unique in that there are a number of private institutions, both friends schools and prep college preparatory schools and also Catholic and religious schools all within a really short distance. Um, what is the response? I'm curious. And, and do the black residents and white residents of the neighborhood respond the same way to this issue? To the school issue? Yeah. Um, in some ways they do. In some ways, you see an upsurge not only in white families sending their kids to private school, but also black families sending their kids to private school. And you see local private schools becoming increasingly integrated over the course of the the 1960s and 70s um, in a way that wasn't taking place in other parts of the city and certainly not in the suburbs. I do think that white residents were less willing to they saw the schools in some ways as a social experiment and they were less willing to partake in that experiment. Um, Black families were moving to the neighborhood because of the safer schools, because of the better teachers. And so for them, this was one of the things they were seeking to attain and they were more invested in maintaining the integrity of the public schools. Um, You also saw white families being catered to by the schools themselves. So, a new principal came into Henry School, which is which is the public elementary school in the geographic center of the integration zone. Um, this new principal sort of made it her mission to entice white families to the school. So hmm. she would call them up when they moved into the neighborhood and introduce herself and invite them on a tour and, you know, very selectively show them classrooms that had what she deemed to be good teachers and, you know, model students. And she would offer them the the parents, their choice of classrooms for their kids. Um, So she really privileged the white families and and at times at the expense of the black students at the school. Um, 
she also created policies that, you know, canceled school dances because she knew that parents were worried about black and white students dating. She she hmm. did everything she could to focus on making the white students comfortable. So once you hit the 60s, late 60s, you, the, the broader context of civil rights in America clearly influences events in this neighborhood. And I'd like to start at this by asking you to talk about a couple, well, a specific program and a specific person. And the program is the face-to-face program. So could you describe what this is and how it illustrates the kind of emergence of broader discussions of structural racism and, and, and so on? Sure. Um, so West Mount Airy Neighbors is the community organization that arises in the in the late 50s to become sort of the voice of the community, and it maintains its its position um, quite well through the mid 70s. And there's a bit of a crisis at that point, and then it reemerges as the community organization of record and continues to be so today. Um, and in the late 60s, in 1968, they said you know, there's some conflict emerging in the community and people in the city and in the, in, in across the country are talking about race a little bit differently now. And we need to come to grips with that. We need to figure out how we as, as an institution and we as a community are going to enter into that dialogue because it's starting to impact what happens here. People are starting to take notice of racial trends within the community and not just around the community. Um, so they set up what they call face-to-face uh, confrontations in black and white, which is this series of community meetings designed specifically to have these very um, overt conversations about racial dynamics. And they take place, I believe there were six of these meetings in total, and people in the community responded very differently to them. Um, you know, many white residents got the invitations and said, oh, I don't need to come to this because I'm not racist at all. Um, and I love my black neighbors and I love my, you know, the, the black custodian that works at my kid's school. Um, you got, you got some really interesting language coming at to the responses of those invitations. Then you had the white residents that went to the meetings who responded in their, um, post meeting reflections that these meetings were grounded in ideas of black power. Um, and, that they felt like they couldn't get a fair shake, that no matter what they said, they were looked down upon with derision, that they were automatically seen as suspect because they were white by the, the moderators of these meetings. Um, it's, it's unclear what exactly took place at these meetings. The archival record doesn't tell us that. But you see from the leadership within West Mount Airy Neighbors, this, this real moment of, of possibility. Some people in the in the community say we should really take a more direct response to race up, up until this point the language of the neighborhood was sort of let's let's create a space that has policies that are for the mutual benefit of everybody mm-hmm. but there was very little talk of racial integration or of race relations or of race in general and this 1968 moment some people start to say well maybe we should have those conversations more systemically and, and integrate that language into our sort of operations going forward. And it seemed like there may be an effort to move into that direction. And then people pulled back and they went back to that language of um, mutual benefit and of, you know, a place where everybody can live communally, live together. And I think because of that pullback and because of the broader culture of race relations in the United States shifting at this moment, this, we, we do see an upsurge in sort of racial empowerment movements of 
um, intra-racial pride within the black community, of ideas of self-help. The response from African Americans in Mount Airy is, is quite different than it was, you know, 15 years earlier when this mutual benefit language first emerged. What what kind of language do blacks outside of West Mount Airy, but in Philadelphia, what kind of language do they use to describe the people of West Mount Airy? <laughs> um, so Mount Airy becomes seen by the local NAACP um, as this site of sort of race betrayal. Uh, Cecil B. Moore is elected to the as president of the local branch of the NAACP in 1963. And he positions Mount Airy as this outlier space, these people that live there that aren't really black. Um, they're sort of part of the elite establishment, and so they've betrayed their race, and they don't deserve to be part of conversations about civil rights and racial justice. Um, and it's, it's very powerful language that he uses, and he directs it specifically to African-Americans in West Mount Airy and specifically at some of the black leaders that emerge in the community. And positions those folks against the, what he terms the black masses in North Philadelphia, the most marginalized people in the city, the people that are most economically depressed, most without a sense of sort of economic rights or civil rights or, or legal rights. And he galvanizes those black masses by, by positioning them against the Mount Airy black elite. Um, so you have people in West Mount Airy sort of trying to wrestle with these ideas of, well, what does it mean to be black? How do I prove my authenticity as a black American and do so without compromising my lifestyle? Um, how do I foster and make myself a part of a larger black community while still maintaining my space in West Mount Airy and, and the, the material conditions that I've been working toward? Um, so more is is sort of ousted in the mid 1960s. In 1966, his credibility gets compromised by some comments he makes uh, about that sort of that are taken as anti-Semitic, and also he's just this very inflammatory, very um, boisterous person who who gets himself into trouble with the national office. But the ideas that he's that he's talking about become distilled throughout the city and I think take hold in a sense in West Mount Airy in the late 60s and early 70s and they cause some conflict within the community. Um, you, the, other, the, the person I was going to ask you about is, is the police chief, uh, Francis uh, Frank Rizzo. Mm -hmm. what, what can you say about him and what his attitudes and policies say about the state of race relations in Philadelphia you know, while, while he's in that position? So Frank Rizzo is the police commissioner in Philadelphia in the late 1960s and ultimately becomes this law and order mayor of the city. And he is what many view as sort of the most racist reactionary in the history of Philadelphia city politics, at least in the 20th century, and, and, and becomes notorious throughout the country as this racist mayor, this racist uh, political leader. He speaks before Congress and he really starts to espouse this philosophy that links race with crime. So you see, I mean, this is taking place in the context of the industrialization of, of a real um, moment of crisis in American cities with crime rate soaring, economics plummeting, um, poverty really increasing. You see um, 
all of these things taking place. And Rizzo says that this is taking place in some ways because of race. He says that the civil rights movement, the, the black power movement, the rise in, a, in the, the presence of African-Americans in the city is creating this crisis. And he does so really effectively. He does so really effectively on a national level and certainly at a, at a local level. And so people in Philadelphia are, are grappling with how to, how to respond to this, this link that he's making. And you see this, this intense panic emerging. And in West Monterey, these same issues that are, you know, swirling around the rest of the country with the rise in poverty, the rise in crime rates, they take place there. So we see, um, crime rates increasing. We see houses, you know, going up for sale. We see petty crime, but also more violent crime increasing. And there's this real tension of how to deal with that at the local level. And white residents say, well, we need to focus on the fact that Rizzo's a racist reactionary and that this is a problem within the police department. And we need to protest against this, this establishment and, sort of at the expense of what's taking place in the neighborhood. We need to maintain our presence as liberal, proactive Philadelphians, and that's our way to do it. And black, the black residents who moved into the community, again, because of the material conditions, in part because of the material conditions that Mount Airy offered, said, okay, that's true. Rizzo's a racist reactionary, but we need to protect our neighborhood. We need to maintain the viability of this space. And if people are committing crimes, then we need to do something about it. So, in fact, in 1974, we see a splinter organization emerging that really challenges the um, credibility of West Mount Airy neighbors. This group's called West Mount Airy Action, and it's a black-led organization. It's, in fact, led by Oliver Lancaster, who was a, a former president of West Mount Airy Neighbors um, and very active in race relations and education in the city. And, and he takes uh, a more proactive approach to the issues of crime in the community. And he says, we're going to team up with the police and we are going to create sort of patrols that go around the neighborhood and they have radios and they call the police and they tell them where crime is taking place. And so that we can respond to it. Um, and we don't think West Mount Area Neighbors is doing an effective job at policing the community. We think that they're too focused on sort of their liberal credibility. And and this is a problem. And you see this real moment of crisis in West Mount Airy. You see, all of a sudden, this is really the first time since West Mount Airy Neighbors began and since this integration project began that people are calling it into question and that people from within the community and, and African-Americans from within the community are saying, they're not doing a good job. They're not protecting us. And we see the uh, leadership in West Mount Airy Neighbors get, get really defensive and, and take very reactionary measures in response and they sort of create this culture of, of fear within the community against sort of a backlash against West Mount Airy Action. A year later, West Mount Airy Action folds with, with very inflammatory rhetoric that's disseminated mm -hmm. throughout the community and people are left wondering how to remake themselves, how to, how to pull the community back together. And this, again, this is all within the context of, of the the industrialization that's taking place and within Rizzo's administration. So people are, are struggling to do this at a local level and struggling with what it means within the larger city politics. And, and the solution they come up with, if I'm not mistaken, is, is to redefine what they mean by integration. Is that right? They do. Um, the president who is elected in the wake of this crisis, Chris Vandeveld, 
um, comes in and he says, we need to focus on things other than race because race has become a problem. Hmm. And so we need to focus on, first he focuses on sort of concrete projects, neighborhood beautification projects, rebuilding projects that can bring people together in ways that transcend racial identity. And then he says, well, this is working. And, 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 and in some ways, Vanderbilt does this in an intentional way, and in some ways, this is sort of an organic process. Um, but this is working, and we're starting to attract people that aren't necessarily coming here because of race. We're starting to attract people that want to just live in an alternative space, live in a space that, that has a legacy of tolerance. We see the emergence of a community of um, you know, gay and lesbian families, of parents of adopted children, of, uh, you know, feminist collectives that emerge in, in the neighborhood. So we see the idea of integration expanding into more of a, a sense of cultural diversity, um, which in some ways really enlivens the community and in some ways kind of dilutes the original intention and um, brings people in without that um, mindset of intentional community development and cohesion. I know your time is, is, is growing a little short, so I'd like to conclude with a few kind of broader questions about what, what all this means. And, and I'd start by asking, you, you identify several neighborhoods throughout the book that served as kind of contemporary examples of similar kinds of approaches and goals. They're always the same neighborhoods, at least they seem to be to me. Mm -hmm. And you kind of suggest that their success faded in the 70s and 80s. 80s. So I'm wondering what that says about the success of Westmount Erie and its efforts at integration. Um, I think it says two things. Many of these integrating neighborhoods, these neighborhoods that took a proactive stance on fostering and creating interracial living, did end up tipping um, to become majority black neighborhoods. Those that did that also became majority middle-class neighborhoods. So mm. they, you know, they may not have succeeded at racial integration, but they succeeded at um, creating and fostering and maintaining a sense of economic, economic stability um, that existed in the community before and existed afterward, which is really different from a lot of other neighborhoods that experienced rampant white flight. Mm -hmm. So they, they were successful in ways that perhaps were unintentional from, from what they originally started to do. Um, I think it also says that Mount Airy is a pretty unique place. Mm -hmm. And in some ways that makes it a footnote to this history, right? To this history of racial justice. One community mm -hmm. that successfully maintains racial integration in various capacities, well, that's really nice. Um, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot about race relations other than that it's hard, that, that integration is hard. But I think that the model that Mount Airy set up, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about social mobilizing, is, is something that we can take from this story and is really important in looking at the broader history of social change movements and what's successful and what's not. And this, this model, what I call in the book, um, grassroots moral liberalism, this mm -hmm. link between uh, grassroots change and a connection to city government and state government and national government I mean, this is an effective way of making change. And I think that story, more than the story of racial integration, is what people can take from the West Mount Airy model. How dependent is that on the what, what I read anyway is a pretty unique demographic of the community of a highly educated, wealthy, stable 
group of people who are, who are used to working with government agencies. Is that you suggest? I think I heard you suggest that that's really critical to their success. Is that correct? That is really critical to the success of racial integration in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's certainly critical to the success of social mobilizing, but that also can be done to scale. So mm-hmm. not everybody can create a less non-area neighbors. Not everybody can create a Weaver's Way Food Cooperative. Not everybody can create an Allen's Lane Arts Center. Um, these are all institutions within West Monterey, but drawn to scale, other communities can take this model and see it as a way of fostering relationships, of creating institutional partnerships, of 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 merging their interests with the interests of other groups that can speak on their behalf. Um, so what happened here? Totally contingent on on economics, and mm-hmm. and that should that's a really important piece of this story, and not something that should be minimized. But the model that they created, I think, does have the potential to transcend economic boundaries. So I'm also interested. Um, in, in the way the definition of integration changes. And, and one of the things that really kind of jumped out at me about this is that this is a organization that started from the interest of religious congregations. Mm-hmm. How, did, did these churches actually end up integrating within congregations or, is this, or, or, or are church congregations still segregated as they are in most of America? Um, I think there's probably some integration within the, the religious communities that could be measured. I don't have statistics on that, and I wasn't mm-hmm. able to find it. Uh, what I was able to find was that, you know, many black residents who moved to West Monterey maintain their church um, connections with their churches, their, their parishes in North Philadelphia, which is where they oh, came interesting. from. Um, hmm. So the African-Americans moving in again, they weren't necessarily looking for this social integration. They were looking for a residential space where they could create a family and send their kids to safe schools and and be a part of a viable community space, residential space, neighborhood. Um, so these other connections at churches or um, at, you know, in Little League, um, in other sort of recreational spaces, mm-hmm. they were less important to them. Um, and I think for the white residents, some people were focused on that. You know, this, there was a, a group that created the Allen's Lane Art Center as a space to use the arts as a vehicle for for residential integration or for, for racial integration. Um, but for the most part, they were also looking at it, as I said earlier, somewhat strategically. Mm-hmm. And so by creating and fostering residential integration, they were able to stay in their homes and to maintain the viability of their community. And they didn't necessarily, you know, en masse, want anything more than that. It was it was a small mi- minority of people that were seeking to create social and community integration. How interesting. Well, I know we've taken a lot of your time, and thanks so much. It's a wonderful book, and I greatly enjoyed reading it. It's a, a little bit of a departure from what I usually get to read, and I it was well worth it. So um, as a concluding question, we always end this way. I just thought I'd give you a chance to talk about what you're working on now. Um, sure. I So I live in Philadelphia, and I teach in uh, northern New Jersey. And the area that I teach in was very um, impacted by Hurricane Sandy in October of 2012. And so about a year, I'm sorry, October, yes, October 2012. 
And so a few months after the storm, I was approached by a, a regional oral history association about doing an oral history project on the storm. And I've spent the last year and a half working with a group of undergraduate students, actually, uh, going into the field, con- collecting interviews, framing uh, a thematic project that really looks at race and politics and representation in the wake of the storm and in the wake of natural disaster. So I'm working on that right now. We hope to have a, a website live, sort of an online digital library of all of our interviews and all of the, the photos and whatnot that we collected um, at the two-year anniversary of the storm, so this upcoming October. And um, we'll see what emerges from that project, but that's where I've been focused. Sounds like a wonderful project. I look forward to seeing it. But I want to say thank you again, and it's been a wonderful interview, and I very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Abigail Purchase, author of Making Good Neighbors, Civil Rights, Liberalism, and Integration in Postwar Philadelphia, published by Cornell University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time. Until then, though, thanks for the download and have a great week.